Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Ben Wilson. Hello there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Ken Ewens-Clark. Ken, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let us know who you are, why you're famous. <laughs> well, definitely not famous, but yeah, Ken Ewens-Clark. I, I live in Tucson, Arizona. I have published two books so far. First one's called Tiny Python Projects. Published that with Manning in 2020. This year, my first book with O'Reilly came out. It's called Mastering Python for Bioinformatics. And I rolled straight from that. Even before production was done, I rolled right into a third book that I'm writing called Systems Programming with Rust. So I really enjoy teaching, teaching people how to, how to learn programming. Kind of one of my main niche there is working with people uh, like scientists, people who, who don't aren't computer science majors. I'm trying to help people learn how to write decent programs to get something done. And that's a lot of what the, the bioinformatics book is focused on is, is how to write Python that is, is tested, has a, has a decent interface, is a fairly solid code, and trying to teach those principles to people who probably have more of a background in biology. So yeah, so uh, that's uh, right now I work as a data engineer at the Critical Path Institute in Tucson, which is a small mm. nonprofit. We actually work with a lot with like pharmaceutical companies and researchers and the FDA to, for instance, try to discover what is a baseline efficacy for a drug and, and what would it mean to for a drug to be effective and, and therefore to be approved for, for new use. Um, so we do a lot of interesting uh, research in, in that kind of realm. So that's just a little bit about me. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Interesting. Really interesting. Now I want to ask all my uh, other nerdy questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like you spend a lot of time talking to, I, I want to say nerds, but we kind of all uh, fall into that bucket one way or the other, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, so Ben, you kind of explained a little bit about working with bioinformatics folks and, and uh, dealing with that kind of data. Have you, have you seen a lot of that at Databricks? Oh, yeah. We have some extremely large genomics research companies and some pharmaceuticals as well. So the nature of the problems that we see people tackling require specialization. Exactly. It's what you're just saying, Ken, is like, hey, it's not a, a one-person show to solve a problem there. So on the early early phase on the, the, the path of developing drugs, for instance, you have the molecular impact testing that you're doing. You're saying, hey, I want to predict what this particular chemical would do to a human cell and running simulations, causal analysis of that, which is ludicrously large-scale data. You could be testing trillions of combinations to figure out where should we even start on 
synthesizing a drug to even begin testing on individual cells all the way to the end final stage of, hey, we're on you know, the final FDA approval. What are the results where statisticians are involved with, with the researchers? And I'd love to hear more from you, Ken, about what that is like from your perspective, working where you do now and what you read about in your book about what are these sorts of problems that people are solving commonly? Mm-hmm. Well, so in my role, at, so I was at the University of Arizona from 2014 to 2020 and, and was fortunate enough there to, to do my master's as, as well, which was a lot of fun. And when I was at U of A, I was working in a metagenomics lab, which is, so genomics is when you know, essentially the, the genome of the organism you're studying. I, actually, before that, I spent 13 years on a plant genomics uh, database called Grameen.org. So, you know, you're taking, say, the DNA of corn and sequencing it and trying to assemble it and learn something about corn. Metagenomics is when you're taking DNA, unknown DNA from an environmental sample, like say the human gut or uh, ocean water, and you're trying to figure out what lives there. So you're, you're, you're generally talking about microbial kind of, of life, of uh, viruses, bacteria, archaea. And so a lot of times we were trying to, for instance, say say someone is a septic in an ER and you take a sample maybe from their blood and you want to figure out what it is that's making them sick because you show up with sepsis, they're going to put you on a really hard antibiotic, probably the worst one there is. And you really need to de-escalate that as quickly as possible. And in order to do that, you would need to figure out what organism or organisms uh, are making them sick. And so that would you know, probably mean, you know, isolating the DNA and sam- uh, sequencing it and then comparing that to like a, a database of known sequences. And a lot of the things that make us sick don't necessarily grow well in a lab and we don't necessarily have genomes for them. So it's hard a lot of times to identify these sequences. Um, but that would have been like, unfortunately, I can't say that I got to work directly on projects like that because that sounds really exciting and that's like real time. That's where we were hoping our research might go one day. We were mostly like, say, just analyze, reanalyzing ocean water samples that someone else had had uh, had had done all the work, and then we were trying to find a better way. So could we improve the accuracy of uh, identifying the species and the organisms that were present? And so, fairly large data sets that we got to deal with, and a lot of times uh, requiring high performance computing clusters. At the U of A, we had uh, a couple that we could use, and also through the NSF. National Science Foundation, there is a there's a national cyber infrastructure for researchers to use. And we got to use one down at the Texas Advanced Computing Center, TAC, uh, down in Austin, that, that we had free access to as well to, to analyze large data sets. Uh, it sounds like what you're dealing with, the Databricks, is, is even on a scale that, that even I haven't enjoyed the, the pleasure of working on. So, you know, I would I would regularly have many, many gigabytes, a terabyte, you know, half a terabyte of data to churn through. But I think you're working on even a larger scale than I had. And the the challenge a lot of times is that the people who understand the domain are biologists, biochemists, and they are not computer scientists. So uh, the scale of data that we have to work in really requires computer science. And that's where bioinformatics comes in. That's the, the marriage of computer science and biology. It actually sounds better in French, but bioinformatique, because informatique uh, means computer science in, in, in French. And so uh, so it really is, I come from, I hesitate to say I'm a computer scientist. My actually, my, my undergrad was actually in English lit. And so I, I learned programming on the job and, and just have studied computer science on my own. But I consider myself kind of a, what one of my bosses would have called a blue collar coder, like somebody who 
who knows how to get the job done. And maybe not always so elegantly. I, I try, I strive really hard to, to write elegant code, but you describe a problem to me, I'll generally find a way to, to get that, that program written. And, and so I just got used to working with like PhD level uh, researchers to write the code that they needed to analyze these kinds of data sets. And, and that's how I found myself lucky enough to just be, be in and around bioinformatics for the last 20 years. Yeah, when you talk about problems, like what you were explaining about what you're doing at U of A, where you're analyzed this sample of seawater, you could have 10,000 different DNA strands that you could extract from that from sequencing. Mm-hmm. And then saying, which of the, you know, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things is not the same. Sesame right. Street style. Right. You're trying to find out what is that match in this massive corpus of sequences yeah. that you have. So yeah. it becomes this O this big O problem, computational yeah. complexity and space complexity to say, yeah. where can I get these partial matches and say, what is my highest likelihood of and my confidence of saying this is actually this protozoa or this, you know, yeah. this bacterium that we're seeing here. And yeah, it's it's really complex if you're coming from a specialist background, like as a biologist or a geneticist, you know everything about the genes and about these organisms and or you know as much as humans know about them, mm-hmm. those things. It's it's like a bridge too far to expect somebody with that deep knowledge to understand how to write a recursive algorithm that performs properly. Yeah. On particularly on HPC yeah. uh, environments. So yeah, do you have any other like really fun like stories about problems that you've solved. I want to chime in here first, because first of all, I think those people are smart enough to write a tail call optimized algorithm on a Docker container. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the, the other one other point that I just wanted to make is that Ken talked about a lot of times we were running against a sample that somebody else had run and trying to find a better or faster or more efficient way of doing it. And I think that's important because a lot of times we kind of get this idea of this sort of flashy, sexy work that we do in machine learning. And as in a lot of other disciplines, a lot of the important work is just finding a better way that shaves time or shaves cycles or whatever. And that's advancing the state of the art. And it's important work too. So anyway. Yeah, actually, if I I could just talk for a second about that. So one of the 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 most used algorithms in bioinformatics is called BLAST, Basic Local Alignment Search Tool, if I'm not, not mistaken. And that's a, a method of aligning two sequences to determine how, how similar they are. So if I don't know how you how familiar you or your audience is with DNA and, and how it changes over time, but generally speaking, like us and, and chimpanzees, we're extremely, extremely similar, like 99.999, really ridiculously similar. So as you look at our chromosomes and you look at the order of the genes, and the content of the genes, they're almost identical. And that's, so if you, the, the further, the more changes between the DNA between two organisms, generally the more distantly related they are. And, and the, those changes can include insertions of DNA, rearrangements where, where maybe one, one piece of something actually gets turned in, reversed in the order of another organism. Big insertions or big deletions that happen, especially in regulatory regions. And so 
as you're trying to determine how similar two things are, you can't necessarily just stick them next to each other and, and start lining up the basis because you really have to account for individual mutations at, at, at points and these in these wide gaps that could, could occur. And so uh, BLAST does this. And it's an amazing, incredible algorithm that people have been using for decades. And, and it just generally works. And But it's, it's not very fast because it's it's not very fast accord, you know, as compared to some other algorithms that we've come up with. And so, but it's it's pretty easy to use. And so a lot of basic bioinformatics is just, well, let's just build a blast database of, of a, you know, of what we're trying to search against. And we'll just blast all of our sequences and we'll just use as many computers for as long as it takes. And that's a very brute force kind of algorithm. Uh, and it works mm-hmm. and, it, and it will often give you an answer. But there are for instance, faster ways of, of comparing sequences that don't rely on alignment. And uh, one of them that we, we really used a lot was called KMER analysis. So MER, I think from the Latin, which means like basically a, a run of something and a K is the size of it. So like think like polymer is a polymer is a, you know, like a chain of, of, of molecules. So a KMER would be like a three MER would be three a sequence of three nucleotides, uh, or or they could or could be protein sequences as well. If you were talking about residues, and so so if you start looking at the level of say twenty one KMERS, when you look at the number of possibilities of organizing four bases over the space of twenty one, so A C T and G four bases over the space of twenty one places, the the likelihood that two, any any two organisms would share a twenty one MER in common is actually pretty low. And so it becomes much easier to find a smaller strand matching KMERS between two organisms than it is to try to align them and to account for all these gaps and stuff. And so that's one of the, something I actually get into a decent amount in the book is trying to explain what KMERS are and how you extract them and then how you can use KMERS to determine how similar two sequences are. And then, and it just kind of has these magical properties like, well, it doesn't necessarily matter if, if the order is reversed or if there are these gaps. If you can find these short camers and there's enough of them between shared and common between two sequences, it's probably good enough in some instances to say that these are the same sequence. Maybe they're not identical, but maybe they serve the same functional purpose. Because the, the two strands of DNA don't have to be base for base the same in order to produce the same protein sequence and therefore have the same functional characteristic in an organism. So using statistical probabilities on those those functional portions of a DNA sequence, yeah. you can do matching by reducing your space complexity by orders of magnitude. Yeah, yeah. It's, which is it's, really important when you're talking about the massive data that some of our customers are dealing with mm-hmm. when you're talking about not just a basic sequence of of a human genome, but full genome sequencing, mm-hmm. where and there are we do have clients that do that, that have the entire human genome of yeah. the reference samples loaded into a, a Spark cluster, and they're yeah. trying to do stuff like that. Like, what are the mutations in this other sample that differ from? Like, what is the the percentage of match here? So on these deactivated regions, or I mean the active regions of of the genome, mm-hmm. how much of an effect is mutation here going to actually cause a subsequent disease or right. medical condition. Yeah, it's fascinating how you can be clever with stuff like that. So, And the, and the human genome is large, but it actually pales in comparison to something like the maize genome. So maize is corn. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, my I just saw yesterday that my boss at Cold Spring Harbor 
where I worked for 13 years. Her name is uh, Dr. Doreen Ware. She actually has a, a paper in, I think, in science right now with her analysis of, of the maize genome. It's just, especially domesticated uh, species of plants have uh, polyploidy is pretty common. So uh, basically multiple copies of multiple genomes that have kind of merged over the centuries of selective breeding. So something that would not have happened in a naturally in wild species, humans by interfering and, and forcing these, these different strains to mate have essentially created hybrid species that have just ridiculously uh, large genomes. And, and who knows how they work necessarily, the, but they give us nice big fat sweet kernels of corn, which is not which is nothing that you ever would have found in nature, even, you know, 500 years ago. That's very interesting. Yeah, that brings me or reminds me of somebody giving a talk on actually avocados Mm -hmm. because of humans messing about with avocados over the last several centuries. Mm -hmm. Apparently, you can't ever plant an avocado seed and get the taste of an avocado that we're used to. You'll get some that tastes like burnt rubber, some that tastes like old cigarettes, just really repulsive flavors if you try to plant that seed because it's all the store presented avocados are all cuttings from the same master plant uh-huh. because the genome has been messed with so much that yeah. when the parents of a fertilized avocado seed, whatever plant comes out of that, we have no idea which genes get expressed and mm. oh, they can be really unpleasant. Mm. Yeah, I, I have two random things that kind of came to my mind. The first one is is that with corn, Italians, if you put corn on pizza, that's uh, pizza all'americana, which is <laughs> American-style pizza. <laughs> I lived in Italy for two years, and we taught English, and we would make them order pizza in English when we'd go out for dinner, and then we'd translate. And I, I always thought that was funny. Anyway, mm. the other thing is is that I wonder... Is this a process that they go through at like Ancestry.com when they tell me that you're more likely to develop this disease or things like that, right? Because they have Mm -hmm. my genetics, right? Right, right. Yeah, so a lot of times uh, the way I understand those kinds of profilings is that they're looking for specific markers. So they're not going to do a full genome sequence. It's the cost to, to sequence an entire genome has fallen in the most unbelievable fashion, far outpacing Moore's Law. We can produce so much more data at so much of a less cost than we could even 10 years ago. You know, it took like 10 years and $10 billion to, to sequence the, the first human genome. Mm-hmm. A lot of that was done by hand uh, using like Sanger sequencing and, and, and very, very manual processes. And I, I can't remember what the estimation is, but it's it probably something like we could do essentially the same work now in probably a week for a, a few thousand dollars. So, but even probably when you send your DNA to Ancestry.com, they're not going to sequence the full thing. They're just going to right. look for specific markers on specific chromosomes for for telltale signs of like specifically your ancestry, who who you're li- uh, mm-hmm. likely related to. And actually, people have found long lost like twins separated at birth, kind of a thing. You know, brothers and sisters they didn't know existed. Dad had you know another family or an affair somewhere, and they found their their half sibling because they were looking at these specific markers that uh, you know the likelihood that they would have been shared by any two random individuals is 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 almost nil. Uh, like you have to be related to share these these regions. But you know you can look at something like the BRCA gene, which is for uh, breast cancer. And mm-hmm. if you have a particular uh, version of BRCA, BRCA one, I think it is, uh, then yeah, you're very likely to be 
to, to, you know, to get, to develop breast cancer in your life. So that leads some, some women to actually perform a double mastectomy as a, as a prophylactic, which is scary. But if you know that you have that gene, it's kind of almost like a, a ticking time bomb in your, in your, in your body. And you just, people can use that information for to perhaps make health decisions. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for answering my question. It sounds like it's a different process though. Mm. I mean, it's not that dissimilar to what Ken was talking about with utilizing statistics and some of this, having people write good code to run Uh statistics on, on those genetic markers. That's how they do it. It's just probability and statistics. Like how much of a match are you here? Mm -hmm. And how much in your book, if you could tell people, do you go into solving problems similar to that as, as examples? Well, you know, my, my problems start off really, really basic. So I'm assuming, especially with, so my first book, I'm assuming probably you've never even programmed. And I'm just trying to, to introduce like really under the hood, I'm trying to get you to, to adopt test-driven development and trying to, to, to just teach some basic fundamentals using Python, but basic fundamentals for writing okay code. And Wait, then you it, teach test-driven development to people who don't know how to code? Yeah. Yeah. Virtual teach, hug, dude. No, <laughs> nobody teaches people to do that. And honestly, I mean, I can't tell you how many headaches are caused. And I mean, I write code all freaking day long. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like, did you test it? Yeah. No. Yeah. Or the other one that I run into is, okay, well, I see you have a test here. Did you try it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, so I want to come back. I want to answer your question, but I'll just take a, a quick tangent. The most difficult student, I'll use that term that I, that I encountered at U of A, I, I actually have to credit uh, that person for, for making me a fundamentally better teacher. So when I first started teaching, I just thought I had like a class of like a dozen people. I was actually teaching Pearl at the time because I was a Pearl hacker for like 15, 16 years. And I thought, I'll just, I'll just eyeball these scripts. I'll just run them by hand and I'll just make sure that they're, you know, getting the basics of it. And it were a pearl hacker. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) For a long, yeah. For the longest time. And so, you know, I got the first couple of assignments and I'm trying to, to, to grade them. And I'm like, this is way too much. And I hadn't like really made it clear, like what was the expectation for turning in a a working script, like how I was going to be grading these things. And this one student, he was turning in stuff that wouldn't even compile. It wasn't even syntactically correct. And he was like, but I turned something in, right? So I get partial credit. And I'm like, well, no, it doesn't even run. But I I didn't have, I I couldn't. I want to use that with my boss. Yeah. Exactly. I get personal credit for this feature branch, right? Exactly. It doesn't right. run. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, but from a from a teaching standpoint, I mean, you know, if I turned in a partially completed English essay, then you'd probably have, I mean, no matter how badly it's written, they'd probably get some credit, right? So I needed to, I need, quickly needed to come up with a way to say, no, you get nothing at all if it doesn't even compile. And so I started I mean, I knew testing, I had used testing, you know, some in my own development. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to write a test suite. And, you know, their grade is just going to be however many of the tests they pass. And then I just started saying, you know what, this, I'm just going to give you the test. So you know how I'm going to grade your assignment. And so you know when your when your program is done, when it passes this test suite. And if you only pass half the test, then then you get half credit. And that's just the way it is. And so, and then I just started realizing this is actually a fantastic pedagogical tool. Like I just come in with a test suite 
and I say, you're going to write this program today. It has to, it has to, it has to give me a usage when I run with dash dash help. It needs to accept two positional command line parameters, the first of which is a file name, the second of which is you know some p-value or something. It needs to open that file, read these records, find this data with this p-value, and then print this you know, output. Mm-hmm. That's your assignment. And so I just wrote a test that has each one of those requirements as a test, and they're, and they're kind of put into a sequence like really to help the student like, okay, first I need to open the file. Now I need to read the file. Now, you know, and, and so to help them understand how to solve the problem in a computational, computational way. And, and then I was just like, uh, after having done that for a couple of years, I'm like, you know what? The test-driven development is just, it's just, it's just sane. It's just morally the right thing to do. We should be teaching people. And so I'm like, hell yeah, I'm just, I'm teaching people who don't know how to code at all. I'm sitting them right down from the very beginning and saying, this is how you write code. There's a test suite and you have to pass it. And then hopefully by the end of the semester, they will have been soaking in it for so long that they're like, well, of course I have to write it. I mean, like, it's just the software is not done unless there's a, a test suite for it. And and it's and in Python, it's actually, Python has a lot of things going for it. I, I can't say I'm actually the, the biggest fan of the language, but it's, it's really good. It really is. And there's a lot that you can do with it. And PyTest is a, is a standard well, it's not standard. I mean, you have to install it, but it, it's a basic, easily installed module that makes writing and running tests really easy. I mean, I really can't say enough about PyTest. Uh, and so I just, from the very beginning, I teach my students how to format their code using something like, you know, YPF or Black and how to length their code with like Flake 8 and what's the other one I use, PyLint and how to, uh, how to run a test with PyTest. And, you know, you start adding these things together and then eventually, especially in the bioinformatics book, I also introduced type hints, which I don't talk about in my first book because I felt like it was maybe just a little bit too much for a beginner. But I think that if you start really using all these things together, you're going to end up writing a really decent Python program. And, and, And then hopefully not just a Python program, but you'll take these ideas into any language that you're working with, any pretty much any language that I've come across in the last, you know, 10 or 20 years. It has a way to to format the code, lend the code, test the code, and and so that's that's really what I am teaching. And I and I said I was going to come around and answer your question, and now I've completely forgotten it. We just talked about something that's more dear to my heart, anyway. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know. I forgot what the question was too. I, mean, I was like, it, it's so common that I see in particularly in data science use cases, uh, regardless of industry or company, that there's something shipped to production that is an artifact, a model, or perhaps it's just SQL or it's scripted case statements, effectively. Human-built decision tree. And it's solving some business case and it starts behaving in ways that they didn't predict. Mm-hmm. Or there's, there's errors, Heisen bugs that are, that are happening. The first thing that I ever ask people when they complain about our platform or about something that's happening in their, their runtime environment, they say, well, can you show me all the, the unit tests and, and also the integration test? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I get the sort of sheepish kick rocks look of, I know right when they, they don't answer and get that look of like, okay, you didn't write any tests and mm-hmm. you're just hoping for the best. Right. Uh, and somebody, somebody checked some code in last week that broke everything and now you're trying to debug it. Got it. Right. Right. But other times I get the, the blank look of, of just disbelief of like, 
hey, we're data scientists. Like, why would we write unit tests? That's a software developer thing. Right. And sometimes they just don't even know how to do that. Right. Sometimes their code is untestable. Mm-hmm. Monolithic scripts that your entry point is run notebook and yeah. your yeah. exit point is is save data somewhere. And it's like, yeah, it's all script. You can't really test that. Yeah. So I think that foundation that you're talking about in that first book is, I mean, that's the way that I teach people mm-hmm. who are coming from that scripting hacker background into, you're not making somebody into a software developer. That requires years of knowledge yeah. and understanding and specialization, but you can make somebody a programmer yeah. by teaching them, here's what a function is. Here's how to test a function. Exactly. Here's, here's what typing is please stop using tuples to return complex data types and mm-hmm. please use a data <laughs> class in Python with, yeah. with strong typing that are that is declared at at runtime. Yeah, um, yeah you're you're preaching to the choir. And I, I think that's that's a great way. So any listeners that are out there that are trying to talk to data scientists or statisticians or or specialists in industry, that's the way to teach it. Mm-hmm. Buy Ken's I, book well, and give it to him. <laughs> and the, the well, first oh, sorry. I was going to say the, the first book, Tiny Python Projects, the, the first, I take Hello World, right? And just show you, just starting from print Hello World, that's a one-line Python program, right? And I build that up into about 20 lines and just showing you eventually how to structure a Python program that has like a def main and enter in main and like run the main and encapsulate the code and Im- import all these, you know, really helpful modules and use arg parse to create an interface and then have an optional argument with a default. And then, and how do I write a test? where I pass in these arguments and verify that the output of the program is what it's supposed to be. And so I just take like, that's either the preface or the first chapter, I think I remember in the first book. And I just show you like starting from one line of Python, how to make hello world into a, a decent program. And in the bioinformatics book, I, I, I am assuming the kind of this, I'm assuming that probably someone has, has probably done some R scripting or maybe done some Python before, maybe a little bit of Perl. All those are pretty, pretty popular in bioinformatics. And so I basically, the, the first 14 chapters of the book are based on the rosalind.info uh, website, which is, if anyone doesn't know, it's, it's a really fantastic resource for, for learning bioinformatics algorithms. You're presented with a challenge, and the first one is counting the bases in a string of DNA and telling me how many A's, C's, G's, and T's there are. Mm-hmm. So it is basically the hello world of bioinformatics, a tetranucleotide frequency, right? And so I, I basically do the same thing. I'm like, okay, you have a string, you get it. Here are eight different ways of iterating over the string and counting it. But no matter how one with any of these eight different ways, they all pass a test suite. Like the test, it's a, it's a black box. You know, the script itself is a black box and I provide an integration test. And then, so in the first few chapters, they're just using an integration test that I've written. But then I'm saying, okay, here's a small part of this problem that we're trying to solve. We can write this thing called a function. And we can test the function itself with a unit test. And here's how we do that. And here's how you write Python. And so I try to get the, the user, I try to get the reader to start breaking the problem down into the smallest possible units and testing that and using that uh, to understand the problem, but also as documentation. Like when there's a mm-hmm. unit test right there in the code, it says, I give the, the function this data structure and I get back this string or this array or whatever it is. And you start to be able to just visualize your code and the problem that you're trying to solve. And I think that right there is is another teaching tool. Like it just forces you to think, 
I give it this, I get this back. Oh, what happens if I give it the empty string? Should it raise an exception? Should it just return nothing? Like, like what should it do? And then, and then you start getting into these, these deeper problems with like, and this is something I really appreciate about Rust. Like, what is it? If I raise an exception, then most people don't know what exceptions are. And then you have to explain all these things. In Rust, you can actually return this thing called a result. And it either is an okay value that contains whatever the okay value should contain, or it's something that contains an error. And then you handle the error and you're not allowed to sweep it under the rug because Python will let you do a lot of really stupid things. And so I try to teach you what those stupid things are and to not do those stupid things. And notably, I should say, I completely avoid object-oriented programming and pretty much the use of exceptions when I'm teaching coding. I teach so these are kind of secret things that I'm, I, I'm really teaching under the covers is test-driven development and purely functional programming. So I'm te- I try to teach people how to just think about a function that does one thing that takes one or two arguments and returns one thing. And then how do you compose those together into a program that works? And then how do you do things properly at the systems level? Like say, for instance, something as basic as returning a non-zero exit value when the program crashes. So and then teaching people about those basic things so that you can then start to compose programs together. And actually, there's an appendix in my book that teaches just how to use make. Like in a most basic idea, how do you start stitching together whole programs into what we call pipelines that take data from the ingest, run it through a shell script, run it through a Python script, run it through some third-party app, little blast analysis, take that, massage the data, run it through another database and all that. That's a pipeline. That's a data analysis pipeline. And if you just learn how to use Make, which has been around, I think I've looked at 1976, it's a work, it is basically a workflow manager. And if you can understand how Make works, then you're going to understand Snake Make and Makeflow and Nextflow and you know Airflow, all these other different kinds of uh, workflow managers. They're all just doing the same thing that computer programs do, which is take data and transform it into something else. They're just doing it at a different scale. Instead of working with functions, they're working with programs and maybe even whole clusters of computers. Anyway, that's my rant there. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, and I think that's important yeah. for anybody who's experienced trying to teach people who are getting into it. I think, I mean, I did it earlier on in my career of like mentoring people and, and trying to teach people how to do things different ways. I would just default to complexity and OO and be like, hey, okay, this is an abstract class, and this mm-hmm. is why how you would override these these methods in here. And this is why we need to use polymorphism here. And you get deer in headlights real yeah. fast when you're talking yeah. to somebody who comes from a pure science background. They're like, mm-hmm. why is coding so hard? Yeah, You can eventually get them to that place if you're getting somebody who is sort of that multi-hat, more senior person in there. And we see it with some of our customers who are in genomics. They might, They start with scripting they learn you know, functional programming and how to craft code that is testable and, and composable. And sometimes I, I talk to those customers like two years after I first talked to somebody and seeing their journey of what they've been, they've exposed themselves to, how they've grown in that space. You're like, whoa, you're creating like a deployable jar file mm-hmm. written in Scala and it's entirely OO. And mm-hmm. oh, I see all this like really clever things that you're doing here. 
And but it's because they they started off in a simple way, mm-hmm. but with the good foundation. Yeah, of exactly what you just talked about. Which yeah, it's super critical. Mm-hmm. Well, and to your point, Ben, this is going back to these basic practices of like TDD, and you know, I, I like starting with functional programming just because yeah, you get a lot of the the complexity out of the way, you know, things like that. But when it comes down to it, so mostly I work with web developers. And I remember one conversation I had with somebody, I just busted them for not writing tests. And they're like, well, well, why do I have to write the test? Don't you trust me? And I just I was like, no, I was like, no, I don't. And they got all kinds of offended. And I was like, look, I don't trust me either. Right. right. I, I was like, and, and the issue is, is that it's not that I don't trust me or you to write good code. Right. That's not the issue. The issue is, is that we're talking about this little piece of code, but it's part of this larger system. And I don't trust you or I to be able to keep track of everything that goes on in this larger system. Yeah. And so we need tests to keep track of all that for us. Right. So that when it grows into this jar file, that's compiled Scala, that blah, 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 that I have to deploy to this cloud system out in who knows where that has to, as you said, Ken, return a one or a zero, depending on if it failed or not, and put data out to the right system and this, that, and the other. If I have tests on that stuff, then I can mostly trust it. Mm -hmm. And then I can move on to the next system and I can mostly trust that. Yeah. And then I can move on to the next system and I can mostly trust that. And if I'm picking up, because most of the, the programming that you're going to do is going to be primarily procedural stuff with your data. And mm-hmm. so if you can work your pipeline in a functional manner without the side effects that you have to keep track of, that keeps it pretty simple, right? And so you have these things that build on each other. And if you're doing it right from the get-go, instead of when it's small and easy to keep in your head, playing fast and loose. And then when you realize that you're not keeping it all in your head, trying to go back and remember everything so that you can codify it into tests and can do all the bookkeeping that you should have been doing from the beginning, you are going to miss stuff at that point. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's the problem that you run into. And so, yeah, just by doing it right from the beginning. And the other thing is, is, is you're teaching people to program. If you instill these practices from the beginning, this is just the way they do it then, right? Then it's yeah. not this, oh, I have to remember to write the tests. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to remember to run the linter. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to remember to do it right. No, it's just the way we write code. I, actually, so I it, love all this. It's funny too, because like with PyTest, and I do this in the bioinformatics book, one of the tests is that it has to pass PyLint. Like it has to come back from PyLint with no errors, with no suggestions. Like that's a test. And also I use, so I, I appreciated Ben that you brought up uh, data classes. I actually teach using name tuples in Python. Now there are these with name tuples, you can add type hints. And so it's like a data class, mm-hmm. but it's, it's immutable, which is mm-hmm. also, I, I teach a lot about trying to, to come up to, to use immutable data structures. And so when you start using types and type hints, then you can run this program called MyPy, M-Y-P-Y to ensure that you're using the types correctly. And if you are returning this class, and it's the only place where I use class because that's that's the way Python does it, but I don't use OO. But if you're using this data class that to, to return a structure from, from a function, like for instance, the way that I teach is that there's a main function. And the first thing main does is called get args. 
And git orgs always returns this, this data class of an args that has like the input file is of the type text.io, which is uh, the data type for a file handle. And this other argument is an integer and this other one is a string. And then all of a sudden, all those pieces flow all the way through the program and MyPy can say, oh, wait, you're trying to do a num numeric operation on a string here in this function and that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And so you get this static analysis of your program like, and that's just one of the tests. Like it runs MyPy, it runs PyLint, and you have to pass those as tests formally in order to say that your program works in addition to your unit tests, in addition to your, your, your integration tests. And I was also just going to say like at my current job, we deal with some protected data. Usually the data that we get is, is like, like we can have electronic health record kind of stuff. You know, personally, usually the personally identifying information, the PII has been removed uh, either by the vendor or it's something that we have to do. But we had a situation where we had a bunch of data that someone in our, in our organization was analyzing on this like Windows computer that had like shared logins and it was behind the VPN, but like, they were using a Jupyter Notebooks to analyze rather large, I mean, somewhat, not, not large to me, but somewhat large data sets. And it was literally taking weeks for, for people to get through this data. And we've been moving more towards like either Azure or AWS and keeping this stuff on a private cloud, especially protected data. You know, we're not allowed to mm -hmm. download that to people's laptops and do analysis. <laughs> so people are having to learn how to do these things in the cloud on a Unix command line environment. And, and they're not going to have a GUI. They're not going to have notebooks to work with. And so I worked with one of my colleagues to translate all of her code into just command. It was still Python, but you know now it's command line. And I was take, showing her how to take essentially this monolithic single function that was hundreds of lines long and break that into smaller pieces that could be tested and we got this working on an AWS, just like four CPU basic VM, Ubuntu. And, the, and I showed her how to write a make file. And in the end, we could process the whole data set with one command. I would just type make, and it would run through all the different steps and it would run in about 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So huge gains in productivity and ease and automation and testing. And like, and we could run it repeatedly with different parameters. Like, well, what happens if we change this? And we can look at the output and, ver and verify it. So bringing, like, she's a, she's a really, really smart person who, who wrote some pretty clever code but it needed a lot of cleanup to bring it into more of a production environment. And so it really took like a couple of weeks working with her side by side, understanding her code and bringing these, these kind of basic coding principles to bear. And in the end, like she's already taking these ideas and, and starting to build on them and, and write her own code in this way. And I, I think that there's, there's huge gains to be made. You just teach people some really basic ideas. Like you said, we're not going to make them computer scientists, but we can make them coders. And and honestly, that's that's what I feel I am. I really feel like I'm I'm a coder, and I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm I'm basically like a plumber for data. Yeah, and I like that. In industry, I, what I end up seeing is exactly what you just described. It's a lot of my engagements with data science teams actually at Databricks. Is hey, we have this awesome project that we wrote, and you're like, okay, where's it running? Most of the time, it's hey, it's on a cloud-based VM, and we have to we have to do some funny things with with looping through our data because we can't put all of that data into a VM. It's like, okay, how big is the data? Well, it's fourteen petabytes. I'm like, okay, oh, so yeah, this is 
this is what Apache Spark's built for. So let me uh -huh. show you distributed computing. But sometimes it is, hey, I'm not running it on a cloud VM. I'm running it on my laptop. And in order to get this model prototype built, I have to use 0.01% of the data just to prove that I can actually solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And then that that step from that script that's running on their, their in their Jupyter notebook on their laptop, that even on 0.01% of the data takes eight days to run and you transfer it to the cloud and teach them, okay, you have this, this one block of code that's copied eight times in the code base. Yeah. Let's create a function and let's test that. And you have this other part that you have all these hard-coded parameters in here. Let's just define that once at the top yeah. of your script. Right. So teaching those basic principles, it directly translates into that old you know, saying, you can, you can hand over some fish or you can teach them yeah. how to fish. So teaching yeah. them how to fish by giving them the fundamentals. Yeah. You, know, you know, unit testing and integration testing, that's your fishing line. Yeah. Uh, functions and that basic code architecture, that's your fishing pole. Mm -hmm. And teaching how to test through and adhere to standard coding guidelines. Mm -hmm. Like those, that linter check, checking PEP8 compliance. Yeah. Are you naming stuff in a weird way? Like the computer yeah. doesn't care. Python yeah. doesn't care. But the human neck that's going to come and maintain this after you certainly cares. And if they can't read your code, the code's useless. So I, I was going to say that some of the, some, a person who I won't name the names, but it was a, a, a fairly famous, uh, not famous, but you know, someone who's written some good technical books that have sold really well. Manning brought that person in to review some early chapters of my first book and he hated it. Um, he really <laughs> ripped it. He was like, I feel like you're telling me to eat my vegetables. This isn't fun. No one's going to want to read this. And <laughs> And I was like, how does that Taylor Swift song go? Why you got to be so mean? Uh, and, and, you know, and I appreciate it because I had read his book and it would be like, this thing is hard. Here's a picture of pizza. And then this is, this is this. <laughs> oh, look, a puppy dog. And, you know, it had like, like clip art in it. And it was just like, maybe I'm giving away too much, but I was, I was like, I was really deeply offended. I was like, screw you, I'm going to teach people how to write tests. And yeah, you do need to eat your vegetables. I'm sorry, I'm a parent of three children. And, you know, <laughs> there's a great saying, you know, uh, having to set an example for little children takes all the fun out of middle age. But you True. do. <laughs> Can't confirm. <laughs> you, you, and you big have, children, I have teenagers. Yeah, and so you you have to model good behavior. And and honestly, having been a teacher in the classroom for several years and, and being a mentor to younger developers and showing this, saying this is the way, this is how we do this, you, you have to practice what you preach. And so this has become so ingrained in the way that I even just conceive of code that I honestly, I can't go back to doing it any other way. And I honestly believe that if you just sit someone down and, and show them, this is how we do it. And this is why, and, I mean, and then I make a point of saying, okay, we have this test and we run it and, the, and, it, and it works and you get a passing code. Now go break your code real quick. Just go <laughs> like remove, remove this comma. And then see how the effect, go run the test suite and then show, see how now you have all these failing tests. Like how else would you have known that that thing didn't work? And so it, it just seems like such a basic idea. And, and no, my book probably isn't as fun as, as, as some other books out there. But I do believe that if, you know, you get to the end of these two books 
either one of them. Hopefully you will have seen enough cleverly written Python that is tested that that it's I mean a lot of these these scripts are pretty much every single one of them is a hundred lines or fewer. And that's in, and that's not even lines of code. That's like including, you know, blank lines. So, you know, probably 60 line, you know, source lines of code, all in all in there. These are not wildly complicated programs, but they do amazing things. Like going back to that tetranucleotide frequency, the first one, it's from Rosalind, which, uh, and so I show you like all these different ways of doing it and how you're testing it each time. It's always working. But when you get down to it, there's actually a one line. It's it's almost a built-in function in Python. It's using the collections module. There's a, something called a counter. And it just like in a second gives you back the answer that you need. And so, but you can't really refactor code unless you have these, this basis of testing involved. And, and that's what I'm trying to teach people. And then later in the book, I actually get into like benchmarking. Like, so, okay, I've shown you six different ways to solve this problem. Which one is the best? Well, let's, let's benchmark them. Let's let I have a, actually I'd mentioned before, uh, before we started talking about I wrote a little Markov chain process to generate synthetic DNA. And so I don't want to put, you know, enormous data sets into the GitHub repo. So I give you a Python program that will generate an enormous data set for you to use and then go use that in these other programs to benchmark all the different six different solutions that I've given you, run them head to head and see which one does the fastest. And now consider why is this one slower than this one? Well, this one's trying to read, you know, an entire gigabyte file into memory which is a horrible thing to do. And this one over here is, is processing it line by line. And so understanding how you, know, you can do some things in Python, but it's a really, really bad idea, like, like using file open read, right? To, to read everything. Instead, we need to do file open and then iterate over the lines in the file. And, but that requires like a different kind of data structure and like, how are we gonna? And so I really try to teach these things, not only like how to build good software, but but how these decisions that you make will affect the performance of the program. And, and I just really ran out of space at the end. I just couldn't get to the point of like going from your individual laptop to scaling this to an HPC or to uh, multiple processors or somehow like even using something as simple as GNU Parallel, which is an astoundingly useful program. We can't really write multi-threaded code in Python, not really safely, but instead of writing a Python program to handle 500 input files, you can write a Python program to handle one input file and then use GNU Parallel to run it on spend 500, spend on 500 yeah, or, mm. or even eight. Even my laptop now, I think, has eight processors, the one I'm talking on. And so I could use seven of them and, and get done seven times faster. So I, I couldn't get to that point. I ran, essentially, I got to 450 pages and my editor said, stop. Like there's not enough paper. Like you only contracted for 350 pages. So stop writing. And so I said, okay. Um, That's that is hitting yeah. close to home as I had have recently well eclipsed the 800 page mark on what was projected to be 350 pages. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's funny that uh, that same experience that you had, Manning did the same thing to me. Uh, I think it's something they do to all of their authors oh, yeah. uh, when they're a first time Manning author. They just mm -hmm. find somebody that they know is going to tear this person down. Yeah. Because uh, my first, my 1P review was exactly the same, just yeah. got torn apart. And I was like, oh man, I need to rewrite like the first six chapters of the book. Yeah. This person was just vicious. And then my DE eventually said, like, you don't have to do everything that they say. Just, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, okay. But I already rewrote it. He's like, stop. 
Yeah. 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 There's something I want to go back to. And then I think we need to start wrapping up. And that was the point that you made about eating your vegetables. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because if you don't eat your vegetables, so to speak, right? If you're not taking care of yourself, then you wind up in the hospital. And that, that just going back to that point, right? It's, well, you can do a little bit of the not so fun stuff now, right? And for me, honestly, at this point, I kind of enjoy (laughs) every time I see all the green, right? Yeah. Get rid of all the red, right? Yeah. And so, and, and incidentally, I'm training for a triathlon for triathlons now. Fantastic. Wow. I trained for a marathon a couple of years ago, getting back into that too. But so, so it's kind of like that same endorphin rush, except I enjoy the endorphin rush from running more than I enjoy it from getting all greens. Mm -hmm. But the flip side is, is that I watched my dad not take care of himself. Right. Right. And so we, we did those trips to the hospital, right? He called me up and said, Hey, we got to go to the emergency room. Right. And then I can actually tell you about, I'm not going to go into all the details. And he passed away a few years ago, but we went to the emergency room and they're talking about congestive heart failure. Right. And things like that. Scary crap. And you'll run into that with your code more frequently if you don't have the good practices on a regular basis going into your code base, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm working on a code base at work right now where we've been injecting it in, but we're dealing with the code that was written without it in a hurry to get something out the door. And sometimes it's painful because we have to now go and surgically fix a lot of this stuff that wasn't done this way. So, yeah there's some stuff that initially isn't fun. And if you've been kind of sitting on the couch, eating pizza and, and, and ice cream, and you've been writing your code that way, then yeah, it feels like, Oh, now you want me to do push-ups. Yep. But reality is, is that at the end of the day, you're going to eventually wind up appreciating having to have done those push-ups. Yeah. Or every code base at the end of the day is going to make you run a triathlon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you prepared for it? Yes or no? Like that's right. That's really, the the message. Yeah. Yeah. And is that triathlon gonna? Are Are you gonna feel like, wow, that wasn't so bad, or <laughs> is it gonna put you in the hospital? Exactly. And a good friend of mine from high school. He we we both ended up in like scientific computing, and and I appreciate that he he was using my book this summer to teach some interns, and when he gave it to them, he's like. I don't think he actually likes Python, but this is a good book for you to read. And there's some truth to that. There's a lot that I like about Python, but there's a lot of things that it will let you do that I just feel like it fundamentally should not let you do. And that's why I've really been exploring Rust as a, it's a far stricter language, Uh but, and it forces you to deal with a lot of lower level stuff. Like I really, I've spent my life basically working in dynamically typed languages like Perl and Python and JavaScript. And now I have to deal with, I have to think, oh, I'm actually dealing with a vector of UA, uh, you know, uh, unsigned 8-bit integers. And that's actually what a string is. And I have to account for Unicode and like, I have to deal with some really low level stuff now. And it was very, very painful at first. I'm like, oh my God, strings are really hard. And I didn't (laughs) ever realize how hard they were. And I don't want to deal with this complexity. I just want it to be hidden from me. But now that I've gotten into it, I I realize how much safer and faster and more secure code can be. And it's more difficult to write it in Rust. But when I get done, there's whole classes of stuff that I don't have to test anymore because the compiler has done it for me. So eventually, I'm hoping that my new book that I'm writing, Systems Programming with Rust, 
is going to introduce the language so that as a, to a beginner, to, to someone who doesn't have a background in C++ and Java and statically typed languages and having to you know, allocate memory and think about the size of an integer and all that stuff, I'm, I kind of, there's a, a, a good bit of hubris involved in thinking that I could write a book on Rust. But my goal was to kind of document my journey as someone who doesn't really understand these concepts to, to learning them and then explaining this to someone else who wants to make that journey. And so I think that there's all the things that we're talking about, like you should do with Python and other languages like it, that um, if you choose to move to a stricter language like Rust, I, I definitely wouldn't suggest people go to C++ because of, of memory safety issues. But if you choose to use or like Scala or Haskell or something like that, if you choose to go to these languages, they're going to be harder to learn but you're probably going to end up with code that is safer to use just because the, the language will force you to do certain things that, you know, Perl and Python and Ruby and, and things like that are not going to force you to, to, to deal with. So that would be my pitch for people who are really serious about this. Like, unless you're really tied to, say, scikit-learn or some machine learning stuff that you're doing, a natural pro natural language processing that you're doing in, in Python, unless there's something like you really need Python, maybe consider using something like Rust to rewrite some of those systems level stuff that's just, you know, opening files and reading them and, you know, excising some columns and doing some statistics. You might actually end up with breaking those these larger monolithic processes into smaller things that are, are much easier to deal with with a stricter language. Couldn't agree Rust more. Is really efficient too. Yeah, yeah. I wrote uh, one uh, colleague in my lab at U of A had written a really interesting algorithm in Python and it was just dog slow. Sorry, I'm from Mississippi. Dog slow <laughs> means really, really slow. And, <laughs> and she asked me if I could fix it. And I say, I said, well, do you mind if I, if I write it in Rust just because I was trying to learn Rust? And she's like, I don't care. I just want it to run. And I and I barely knew Rust. I got it to work and it was 40 times faster. Just oh yeah. No shock. Know. And you know, and, and you know, she was, I probably could have gotten it to be 20 times faster in Python just because I know Python better than she did. But I like I barely even tried with Rust. And it when it compiled, it was correct and it was fast. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, that was cool. Yeah. So we say dog slow in Utah too. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks and wrap this sucker up. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Ben, do you have some picks? I have one pick. And it's because I've, I've finally almost gotten to the, the stage where I'm no longer spending nights and weekends writing anymore. So I've <laughs> now had the ability to read again for the first time in almost a year and non-technical stuff. So I've been getting back into David Thorne's books. This guy from Australia 
He started a website a couple of years ago called 21B slash 7. People may recognize him from the internet spider guy. I sent that, that email and tried to get somebody to return his drawing of a spider drawn incorrectly. Anyway, his books, incredibly dry wit, hilarious. So if you're a tech person and you really like clever, dry British slash Australian wit, give this guy a, a check out. It's a great way to unplug your brain from some of the crazy stuff you may be dealing with at work. Nice. Very cool. I've got a couple of picks. So this week, I think I might have mentioned it before the show to you guys, but I've been uh, fighting with my uh, bookkeeping, which is always fun, right? It's it's a thing you do when you have a side business and I have a side business and you're listening to it. So anyway, I had to get a whole bunch of stuff together for taxes. One of the things I had to do was I had to get my bookkeeping together and I had trouble finding a bookkeeper that had time that I trusted. So I finally just buckled down and did the reconciliation myself. Short version of a long story is that I keep kept trying to do it in QuickBooks and I kept not getting the number that I needed to get. In other words, I needed the number in QuickBooks to match the number on my statement. My bank statement just wasn't working. So somebody told me to try zero, X-E-R-O dot com. And I checked it out. It's a lot cheaper than QuickBooks. Uh, it's a lot simpler than QuickBooks. It just doesn't do, do quite as many things. Not as many bookkeepers or accountants use it either. But I was like, what the hey, right? Because it, it had a two-week free trial. So I got in and I reconciled it much more quickly and actually accurately reconciled like six months worth of books in a few hours. Nice. And so I finished it. it. Turned out the hardest part was once I got done, some of the bank transfers between PayPal and my main uh, bank account were... Anyway, PayPal accounted for some stuff weird. And so I had to figure that out, right? But anyway, I'm pretty happy with it. At this point, I think I can keep up with it on my own in like an hour a month. And so I'm pretty happy with it. So I'm going to pick zero-xero.com. Uh, so if you're trying to run a business, check them out. They also have an invoicing feature and it has the same kind of click to pay that like FreshBooks and QuickBooks and all those others have. Hmm. So I'm, I'm enjoying that. So I'm going to pick that. I'm also playing with, I think I might've picked in the past Kajabi because they had added podcasting features. Mm-hmm. They have a couple of features missing that are kind of important for me. So I am going to not pick them. I'm actually playing with fireside.fm, which is another podcasting system. Right now, all of the podcasts are on WordPress. And the short version of that long story is, is that I custom built a web page a while back and it turned out to be just this maintenance headache for me. So I moved to WordPress because I did theoretically wouldn't have to maintain WordPress. Turns out you have to maintain WordPress if you have a complicated setup. So moving to a SaaS offering, theoretically, then I won't have to maintain a SaaS offering is my thinking. And it it does most of what I need. Uh, Fireside does. Now, funny enough, just another side note, what's his name? Mark Cuban is coming out with his own podcasting hosting platform that is also called Fireside. But mm-hmm. anyway, that so Dan Benjamin and Mark Cuban can duke it out. But anyway... So I'm pretty happy with that. I'm probably going to move all the shows over to that. Lastly, and this is going to be a a little bit long-winded just because as I've picked this on the other shows, I've gotten a little bit uh, talky, I guess, for lack of a better term. I've been thinking a lot about where I want things to go with devchat.tv. And I've also been doing a lot of coaching over the last six months or so. 
And I realized that as I've been doing this coaching that I really, really enjoy helping people kind of figure out what the next stage of their career is. And in particular, it's been where I just, just helping people get clarity on where they're going and then helping them figure out what those next steps are. And I really also want to help people just knock their careers into the stratosphere. And I kind of feel like people sort of coast in their careers, you know, so they're on this sort of default trajectory where they get more skills and then they get paid better and move to a different job that pays better, right? And then they get more skills and, you know, and then they just kind of follow that along. And eventually I find that most people, they just kind of wind up in a place where they realize that the next gig looks a lot like this gig and the next day looks a lot like this day and the next paycheck looks a lot like this one. And they're kind of wondering why they're doing it all. And they want to contribute back to the community or contribute to other people or get recognized for some of the work they're doing or things like that. And so what I, how this is all kind of coming together is I'm putting a whole bunch of things together. I'm actually looking at rebranding devchat.tv to top end devs, topendevs.com. But the other part of it is, is that I want to do a regular coaching call slash and and I hesitate to use this word, but I'm going to say it and then I'm going to tell you why I'm hesitating to say it. Webinar. Because a webinar to me is where you give people half the information they need to actually do anything and then you give them a sales pitch at the end. And what I'm talking about is I'm going to do like 10 to 15 minutes of training on how to do a thing that's going to help you move ahead. No sales pitch at the end, right? So I'm just going to give you real content and then I'm going to answer questions, do coaching until we're out of time or until people... We don't have people with questions anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Do it every week. I'm looking about noon mountain time on Wednesdays. But with my kids' school schedule, that may change. But I'm going to do it every week, once a week. If you go to devchat.tv slash level up, you can actually just see when it's scheduled. It's using Zoom's uh, webinar feature right now. And so you can just sign up to show up, right? And then I'll actually bring you on the call. and. It's not going to be a Q&A like, hey, you know, what's your what podcast mic should I use? And I just tell you, right? You can ask those questions and I'll give you short answers if the short answer is merited. But if it's a longer answer, like how do I deal with this kind of a thing at work? You know, I might, I'll, I'll ask more questions and we'll actually dig in and get enough information to give you a good answer, right? Mm-hmm. Or, hey, you know, what kind of media should I be producing in order to get this result in my career, right? So we'll dig in, we'll figure out what kinds of things you, you know, you like, what you've tried, what's worked for you in the past, what kind, and, and try and give you an actual real answer, right? And so it's going to look, in my opinion, more like coaching and less like, less like an AMA, I guess. So anyway, that's what I'm putting out there. Like I said, devchat.tv slash level up. Eventually that'll probably move under topendevs.com. But yeah, that's kind of the direction things are heading right now. So if you're looking for some help trying to figure some stuff out, that's what I'm doing. Nice. Ken, do you have some picks? It's interesting. I last weekend went to a high school reunion back in Jackson, Mississippi. And and I was I was telling my daughter yesterday that I, I went into it trying to to go into it with much more compassion and and just open-mindedness than uh, and and I actually really enjoyed myself and, and really enjoyed seeing my old classmates. And I remarked that this was pretty much the the exact opposite of the way I approached high school. And the result was also pretty much the exact opposite. I was a 
I was I was a pretty hostile and closed-minded individual in high school, and I kind of hated everyone. And so I've really been working a lot on the last couple of years. I've been using a, an app called Waking Up for to doing to for guided meditation, and I also listen a lot to a lot of talks just about about mindfulness and about uh, having gratitude and cultivating gratitude in your life and and being aware of of uh, the things that we have that that we didn't choose about ourselves, uh, some of which are bad and some of which are good. But we're all here. We're all just trying to, well, I think most of us are trying to do something good in the world. And and there's a lot of good people. And I think that these these kinds of ideas have have really started to permeate my life. And I think in in a very positive way. And so if... uh, if you're if you're drawn to those kinds of ideas of meditation and, and mindfulness, uh, I think that they can really, even along with eating your vegetables, can really improve your life. And so, uh, I think that something like a a meditation app is is a good thing to to incorporate into your life. Nice, yeah, that's a good one. Yep, absolutely. All right, Ken, if people want to reach out to you or ask questions about this stuff, where do they find you online? Uh, on Twitter, I'm KYCL4RK. I missed the boat. I wasn't able to get KY Clark, but I am KY Clark at gmail.com. I'm uh, KY Clark on GitHub. That's where you'll find all my code. I, I don't tweet a lot, but I do sometimes talk about things that I'm working on. I, I saw something that somebody said that uh, authors, when they die, they, they become their books. And I like that idea. So I, I hope that the books that I'm writing are, are something that you could find useful to improve your your career, your life, your approach to software. So hopefully you'll find find my books as well on Amazon. Awesome. All right, folks, we're going to wrap up here. Thanks again for coming, Ken. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All yeah, right. Well, till next time, folks, Max out. All right, take it easy. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.